I think this is the last chance for Australia. This is the last chance to wake up and understand where investments and where the economy and where energy in Australia and especially where exports need to go. Hello, everybody. My name's Eitan Lenko, and I'm the chair and interim CEO of Beyond Zero Emission. I'm speaking today from Bunurong country, and I'm delighted that so many of you have taken the time to join us for the launch of the Beyond Zero Emissions Million Jobs Plan. I am welcoming you here into my beautiful hidden valley of the Gorobung, anglicised to Kurobun, in the scenic rim country. And I'd like to acknowledge the owners from all the lands and all the countries around Australia, some 600 of them. I'd like to acknowledge all the elders. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Boon people of Melbourne as well, especially. I just wanted to start today by asking whether you know Uncle Albert. We call him Uncle Albert Einstein. We cannot resolve the problems of this society with the same consciousness with which they were created. So here I am, invited into the circle this morning. I think we all need to be together, supporting each other to understand how that integration can come about. There's no doubt we're different, you and I. We have different world views. You have stories about, some of you have stories about the Garden of Eden and the snake that came in and tempted Eve to bite the apple. Well, that's not one of our stories, my friends, because in our story, we would have picked up a dirty big rock. We would have hit that snake over the head. No more problems in the Garden of Eden because we would have cooked him up for dinner. So we've got a different way and different frames of reference at looking at things. Unless we can take that step to the right, it's going to be same old, same old. Thank you for inviting me to join you here this morning to think about a perspective other than the ones we normally follow. When I read through Beyond Zero Emissions Goals, I thought, I'm excited. I just leave you with the thought. We've looked after this place you know, for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And you come along and you do things differently. And I ask you how we survived ice ages, how the tall ships could come here to pristine environments. And that happened because our people listened to the land, walked on the land, felt the land. So maybe there's, a, there's an integrated path that we can follow of knowing that our community, United Nations says community is common unity, that our community is all living things and having respect and honour 
for all living things and for each other. Thank you, Aitan, for having me here this morning and welcome to country. Thank you, Auntie Ruby. That was such a great way to start the day today. Today, you're going to hear lots of great ideas, and I'm sure you're going to want to share a lot of them out on social media to the wider world. And if you do, please use the hashtag million jobs plan so that people can relate it back to what we're talking about. Very shortly, the million jobs website will go live, so you can download the report that we'll be talking about at millionjobs.org. Beyond Zero Emissions is a not-for-profit climate change and energy solutions think tank. We show how Australia can thrive through a transition to a zero carbon economy, and we've been internationally recognised for our work in this space. Beyond Zero Emissions makes change through a number of angles. Our research identifies opportunities for national and regional economies, work with communities to help them implement plans and we work with business and industry to help them develop and implement low emissions strategies. Over 10 years, we've published reports for every sector of the economy, from energy, buildings, land use, transport, energy exports, and the manufacturing sector. So we well and truly understand what it will take for Australia to capitalise on this opportunity. A great example of our work was our Northern Territory 10 gigawatt vision that we launched last year in Darwin. The premise behind the vision was that the Northern Territory has one of the world's greatest renewable resources. And if we put that at the centre of the economy, it would mean that for the first time, the Northern Territory could access cheap, clean energy. And that would open up opportunities like minerals processing, hydrogen, manufacturing, electrified mining and transportation. We built a coalition of supporters around that plan and presented it to government and influencers and it's been credited with changing the economic direction of the Northern Territory, which is now open to the opportunities that low-cost renewable energy presents. BZD is an independent organisation. We rely on our supporters and funders for the important work that we do, so we'd like to say thank you. We've also put together an incredible advisory panel around the Million Jobs Plan. We've got great people across business, industry and community and right across the political spectrum who've come together because they're passionate about the direction of the Australian economy at this important moment. And finally, I'd like to acknowledge the incredible team that's actually worked on the Million Jobs Plan. Beyond Zero Emissions is a unique organisation in that we have obviously a paid staff, but we also gather around us an incredible group of passionate volunteers who are experts in their field. And we've had over 30 people working on the Million Jobs Plan um, for the last few months. And I'd particularly like to call out Heidi Lee, our project lead, Michael Lord, our research lead, Dr. Heidi Edmonds, Samantha Miller, and Dominique Hess, who've been working on the community aspects of the plan, and Imogen Butler and Scarlett Nelson, who put together this fantastic launch. So let's get into it. The context of the Million Jobs Plan is that Australia is now at a crossroads. 835,000 jobs have been lost just since March. 
we know that billions of dollars will need to be invested to get the economy back on track. The principle of effective stimulus is that it should create jobs, obviously, but that's best done by accelerating a trend so that we bring forward spending and jobs that would have happened in the future to now, which is when we need them. It should do that through encouraging private investment. So what is that trend that we're looking to accelerate? One of the ways you can look at that is the mega trend over the last 50 years towards digitization. That trend has affected telecommunications, entertainment, all aspects of our economy. And right now it's impacting on energy. Analog-based technology that we're transitioning from is obviously that fire-based technology, coal, oil, and gas, inefficient, polluting, centralized, and expensive. And we're moving to the digital technologies, the electrical technologies, which are efficient, clean, distributed and modular, cost-effective, and when powered by renewables sourced right here in Australia, encourage self-reliance. Coronavirus is only accelerating this trend. And obviously the driver of that is the economics of renewable energy. It's now the cheapest form of energy and shows no sign in slowing its reduction in cost. So this makes any economic plan that doesn't rely on that uninvestable, at least through private investment. This plan is accelerating our access to low cost energy and the activities that that shift unlocks. Clearly, this is a fantastic opportunity for Australia. We have amongst the best wind and solar resources in the world. Australia's already moving. Every state and territory in Australia has signed up to a net zero emissions by 2050 or earlier target. And corporates and investors are already reducing their emissions in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. Seems like every day there's another announcement. And globally, we're in good company. The IEA says to put clean energy at the heart of stimulus plans. The International Monetary Fund also agrees. And we've had statements from the World Bank and national governments all around the world, including the UK, most of the countries in the EU and South Korea. And we're getting great examples here in Australia too. Just last week, the New South Wales government announced the results of its first renewable energy zone expression of interest. They asked for three gigawatts of projects and they received 27 gigawatts of interest valued at $38 billion of private investment. So three gigawatts of those projects will be chosen and that leaves another 24 gigawatts of projects looking for a home. So private investment clearly wants to invest in this direction. So the Million Jobs Plan is a framework to take all of that background information and to show where investments and jobs will be if we accelerate our access to low cost energy. We've identified the key sectors of our economy which will inevitably shift to a low carbon economy purely based on the economics. We want industry, communities and investors to work with us in this framework to create the best ideas for regional solution. And we plan to bring Australia's best ideas to government, ready with key partners, private capital, with plans to rebuild our economy. So to finish off, this is the prize. We've got a once in a generation opportunity to rebuild Australia's economy and set ourselves up for the next 50 years of growth. And if we do, we've got 1.8 million jobs that Beyond Zero Emissions has identified that could be created over the next five years. So that's across accelerating the rollout of renewable energy, retrofitting our buildings to make them more energy efficient, electrifying our transport and taking that opportunity to manufacture things like buses here in Australia, expanding our manufacturing and mining industries, getting on with land regeneration, particularly after horrific bushfires we had earlier this year, and setting up a waste recycling industry. We'll go into more detail on these opportunities after the panel discussion.
So with that overview, I'm very excited to introduce our panel. I mean, this is one of the best panels that I've ever seen. So I'm, I'm very excited to hear what they have to say. We have John Dury, the Senior Business Columnist for The Australian, who'll be moderating the panel. And today we are very lucky to have Christiana Figueres, one of the architects of the Paris Climate Agreement, dialing in from Costa Rica. We have Deanne Stewart, the CEO of First Date Super, one of Australia's largest superannuation funds. Kevin McCann AO, the former chair of Macquarie Group and Origin Energy, and Mike Cannon-Brooks, a renewable energy investor and the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian. John, please take it away. Hi, good morning. And I think we, we might start with Christiana just to give a, an international framework to this. Good morning to all of you. And I'm speaking to you from Costa Rica, a very dark night here in Costa Rica we're actually having a blackout. And the only reason why I can speak to you and I have some light is because I'm relying on batteries from solar power. So there you are. <laughs> I must say, I am really excited about this plan. It just fits so beautifully into answering a question that I have had for years, which is why is Australia not the leader of renewable energy and renewable powered industry in the world? There honestly is no answer to that, or at least no serious answer to that, because you are sitting on all the renewable energy sources that there are. You have such a capable labor force. You have the world's largest growing market right in front of you. It's just, honestly, it's very difficult from the outside to, yes, I know that there's politics involved. I'm not, I'm not unaware. But even so, it's very difficult to understand that there is place for that political position when everything else from the real economy dictates otherwise. And just for you all to know that you are not the only ones. There are country after country that is truly understanding that especially now coming out of the health crisis and moving into the economic crisis, how to get out of this economic crisis, it is being increasingly understood that precisely now when there's a breakdown of the old economy, that is when space is made for the new economy. Yes, we are in the worst crisis that we've had since the Second World War. Precisely because of that, there is space. Think of it of when a very large tree falls down in the forest. It makes an incredible amount of space. It brings in so much more light that wasn't there before for new growth. That is what is happening right now. Yes, we're still in the pain of the tree that is falling, but as it falls, it makes space and brings in light for so much new growth. We cannot afford to build back. I continue to hear the build back message. Even if it's followed with better, we can't afford to build back. We have to build forward. That is the only way that we're actually going to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. Now, the EU has actually very well understood this. And I'm going to talk about the EU, let alone what Germany is doing separately, what Spain is doing separately, what the Northern European countries are doing separately. But just to give you a flavor, the European Union 
is looking at a recovery package that is going to put in $90 billion into home efficiencies, euros, 25 billion euros into renewable energy, 20 billion into clean transportation of vehicles, 60 billion into clean train. And they're going to be creating and producing 1 million tons of clean hydrogen. If there is a country that is positioned for clean hydrogen, it is Australia. And that is the market that is emerging out of the vision into the future. That's why Europe is going into that. That is why Europe, with this recovery plan, is creating a million jobs and is, of course, funding also a just transition fund because it's important to take all those workers who have been for years, if not decades, at the service of especially the coal industry to say nothing of oil and gas, but take them with us on this journey into the future. So I'm very excited about this report. Every time something dramatic happens in Australia, I keep on thinking, right, this is when Australia is actually going to make the bend in the curve. And I hope that this is it. I hope that COVID has woken us up to understand that there will eventually be a vaccine for COVID, but there is no vaccine against climate change. Hence, we have to have recovery plans that plan for the future. I hope we understand that because we're now no longer in linear and gradual transformation, but everything is exponential, and you've seen that in the past two months, we don't have any time for timid approaches about the transformation of the energy sector. And particularly, and this is the message that I really want to lay at your feet, if countries are going to go into debt and the European Union will go into debt for the COVID recovery, then let's understand that that new injection of capital is capital that is going to be injected now, but is going to be paid for by future generations. Hence, that capital has to be invested in the interest of future generations and not with the perhaps unintended but very clear consequence of robbing future generations from their future and from their well-being. So with that, I congratulate the authors of this report. It's a very exciting report and I am crossing all my toes and all my fingers for this to be the moment when Australia really is finally going to take the bend in the curve and move in the direction of renewables. Christiana, that was wonderful. Thank you. I might turn the microphone now to Mike Cannon-Brooks because he's someone who's looked at Australia from sort of inside and outside. And why do you think it is that we haven't taken the chance now before and, and made the most of our opportunities? Thanks, John. Thanks for having me, Eitan everyone, um, and congratulations on the report. I agree with Christiana. It's fantastic to have a positive focus report in this direction. Look, I don't want to dwell too much on the past. I'm not sure it's particularly useful, John, to say why we haven't gotten here. We are where we are, and we've got to be honest about that. And then we've got to say, how do we get to a future that's better for our economy, for our country? I think what Christiana is trying to say and, and saying eloquently and what the report says is, Let's focus on our assets. Let's focus on the resources we have as a country, right? That's our people. Let's classify sun and wind as a resource for a second. And let's look at the natural advantages we have, right? And, and we can build 
a renewable energy superpower with a very low cost of energy generation, we can use this as an opportunity to electrify so much of our economy in lots of different ways. And we can use it to build a, a better strategically positioned economy for the future. Right. And so it's sort of a, it's a triple win. Right. And, and the way that this is phrased here in terms of generating a million jobs to create economic recovery is fantastic. It's the way we need to think about our future. Right. I've long said, and I stole the quote from someone else, but I repeated it ad nauseum. In a carbon constrained world, Australia should be a winner. We have all the resources to be a winner in that world. We need reports like this. We need all sorts of projects and, and um, all sorts of different initiatives across lots of sectors. What I like about this report is, it's, by the way, it's not just in the renewable energy sector, right? It's looking at a lot of different sectors. We need all of those things with a, a singular destination of building a better and stronger economy for Australia in the future. And this is, this is a great logical path to get there utilizing our, our resources that we have, uh, as much our talents and our people as it is about our position in the world next to a couple of billion of consumers and, and our resources that we have that are natural. It's exactly the sort of report we need at, at this exact time. Yeah, Mike, just a quick follow-on. I Just from your perspective, you get a lot of ideas across your desk. What, what makes you, or could you tell us what in your mind, like why you choose, say, some cable over a competing project or another project just what are the things in your mind that make one project going to be workable and and another maybe not oh look there's there's lots and lots of great projects out there sun cable you know for those who don't know is uh, uh we call it a lighthouse project and we tend to back lighthouse projects we're, we're obviously slightly more risky capital so we can take bets and we're more scientifically driven a lot of these projects there's a huge momentum towards if it hasn't been done before i'm not convinced it can be done so we look for projects that we can show people like the Hornsdale Power Reserve and like Sun Cable that it is possible to do, right? We can connect Australia to ship electrons, quote unquote, uh, to Asia. And if Sun Cable works, there'll be 20, 30, 40 cables connecting uh, the north of Australia to Asia in lots of different ways. It's entirely using, you know, today's technology. We're not inventing anything. We don't have any R&D in terms of the hard physical assets, we're going to string them together in very clever ways, but it's a very logical project. We're connecting one of the most irradiated places on earth to millions and millions of consumers who don't have access to that using, it happens to be the world's biggest solar farm. It'll be the, the world's biggest battery by a factor of a hundred or something. Um, and the longest undersea, you know, high voltage DC cable. So that scares a lot of people. But we can build each of those things individually. These are modular technology assets, building another kilometer of cable or an extra two panels on the end of the, you know, they're all logical, but we need to prove in Australia that we can export energy. We've exported energy for a long time, just in the wrong forms. And now we know they're the wrong forms. We didn't know that 30, 40, 50 years ago. We now know those are the wrong forms to export energy. They happen to be non-economic forms to export energy too. They're not the cheapest way to generate it. So we're just trying to show that we can do those things, right? And the projects we do in waste management, in soil carbon, we, we, we've had a whole series of announcements just this week. They're all logical things, right? Some of the more at the science end of R&D, some are just putting technologies together. One of the things I really like about the Million Jobs Plan is it's not about inventing new technologies. It's about deploying the technologies we already have today at scale 
to generate jobs and economic prosperity for Australia. And that's exactly the direction we need to be thinking. Yeah, fabulous. Thanks, Mike. Deanne, we, we might switch the mic to you. I think you're about to be head of the second biggest super fund in the country. What's your investment thesis on, on carbon innovation and, and where we should be heading? Thanks, John, and morning to everyone. And I do want to echo with the rest of the panellists, I really applaud Beyond Zero Emissions for this, this report. It's, it's bold, but it's really plausible. And so as it relates to sort of big super funds, we see a really crucial role that we can play in this recovery, but with that dual goal of decarbonising. And the investment thesis is really simple. If you look out over the next decade and you look at the forces at work, climate change and our need to address that is probably the most dominant force. And in an investment portfolio sense, it's one of the greatest risks and opportunities. So from an investment perspective, we actually see it crucial to be considering and we'd much prefer to be leading bravely on this matter than being a laggard. Certainly, as we looked at it back in 2015, we created a climate change adaption plan for our members that really did look to engage with particularly the large emitters in terms of what's their plan to transition. And we also looked at huge investments in things like renewables, like wind farm, battery storage at a commercial level. But just at the beginning of this year, we've actually upgraded that adaption plan to the next level because I agree with what Christina said. It's bold action is needed and there are significant opportunities out there, but significant risks. So, our new plan that we've just created in February this year is looking to take it one step forward. So what are the areas we want to divest from? How do we transition the portfolio to low carbon economy? So I'll give you an example in Australia. There are six companies in the ASX 200 that create more than 50% of the emissions, more than 50%. So how do you actually transition the portfolio and protect the portfolio? And then thirdly, what are the significant opportunities? So areas like major scale renewables, some of the emerging technologies, whether it be batteries, whether it be hydrogen, um, uh, provide significant opportunities. So that's essentially our investment thesis. And, and we think that that's the right thing to do for the long-term future of our members. Yeah, th thank you, Dan. What, what, what's the, the role of a super fund, do you think, in, in this process? Like, where do you see a place? And if I could just add a little rider in, it, during COVID, the government's added a new uh, role to super funds in that you're sort of a, a bank for people who are short of money. How, how, does, how does that make your life more difficult if it does? Look, certainly, I think what you're referring to there is that Australians were able to have early access to their super, 10,000 between now and literally tomorrow, and then another 10,000 in the following couple of months. That has certainly made the challenge more, more difficult, but certainly large super funds like First State Super have significant capital to deploy in areas like this, and we think we have a crucial role to play right alongside businesses and government. And let me just give you a few really practical examples that go to the heart of this report that Beyond Zero Emissions have just released around 1 million jobs. One is certainly in renewables, so major large-scale projects, but also particularly the infrastructure that is needed to create the right distribution for renewables as we build that out. We've certainly got a huge role that we could play in deploying capital in that area, but also in the emerging technologies. So our private equity portfolios, for example, 
are invested in, say, the battery storage area or certainly waste, recycling of tyres, recycling of waste is certainly another area. But also one of the areas, housing and around making sure that we make that as low carbon as possible, create jobs. So give you an example, we own a major retirement village that's a creator, an owner, an operator. Over the next five years, they're creating 20 new retirement villages. We're making sure that every one of those has solar and batteries that ends up being a great way of moving to a low carbon economy, but also is a great way for those that are actually in the, the village to reduce their electricity costs. So significant roles to play. And then the final area mentioned by the report is around electrifying transport. And that's another area where I think super funds could really play a role in partnership with governments and businesses. So, so many of the areas of the report, I think we've got a role to play, quite frankly. Great. Thank you, Diane. Kevin, I'm going to ask you a sort of a a more um, issue of today, which is we're obviously still in the middle of this COVID crisis. I was just interested in your perspective on how company boards would be looking at future investments now and or, or maybe should be looking and I'd be interested in your perspective. In terms of boards, John, I've, I've been advocating that we, we really need to, uh, as, as some of the other panellists have said, not look backwards. We've got to be looking at the new technologies which again set us up for the 21st century in areas like life science, in areas like energy, I think the boards are getting the fact that you can't go back to the past in order to build a sound economy. This country really has done very well with commodities and we've done very well with fossil fuels and there's a recognition that as we decarbonise our economy over time, we're going to have to move to new areas. And, and we've done really well in technology and we've really done well in life sciences. So so I'm 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 looking for technology projects which are, which have got products and platforms that can be taken global, as Mike Cannon-Brooks has done with Atlassian and which other successful technology companies and life science companies have done as well. Kevin, is there anything you think that the government could do to, to help this process? Yeah, look, I'd really like Nev Powell's group to give attention to what BZE has come out with today. We, we probably haven't had as much focus on technology as we could. Life sciences have been very well treated in terms of taxation. I think technology uh, has not has had as generous a treatment, and I think that's something that should be addressed. But I'd also hope that R&D is, is another area that they're prepared to put money into. For instance, um, although we're going to use existing technologies in some of the initiatives we heard this morning, I'd really like us to be looking at, 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 at storage of energy. That is, that is a game changer, important for storage of solar. It's important for transport um, in those areas. I'd like, I'd like, I thought the initiatives we're seeing in building extremely interesting, the use of uh, wooden buildings, the retrofitting of buildings. And again, that's going to need R&D, John, in order to be, uh, in order to be successful. Yeah, th- thank you. If, if I could m- maybe just throw this open, um, a lot of people have talked about uh, government uncertainty in industry policy. Do, do, do you think we're at that point now in Australia? 
I certainly think, uh, and and clearly they've come out recently more with a high-level roadmap, but I think the time is now to actually get really clear about the details and really clear policy that allows players like business and super funds to actually deploy their capital and really back the future um, with much, much less risk at hand. At the moment, there's a lot of risk out there without a really clear path and policies. So, yes, I think that that would be a significant step forward. Yeah. How about you, Mike? Yeah, risk of not getting in trouble, I'd agree with Dan. It, I, I think there's a lot of risk and uncertainty out there in long-term policy that could be removed, and that would certainly increase greatly the amount of investment in future forward technologies and projects that deploy existing technologies in future forward ways there is for sure a lot of risk that could be removed by having policy certainty and long-term certainty around how that sorts of thing is going to happen. Um, And secondly, having a long-term direction, right? The technology roadmap is an interesting uh, option. It's it's a strategy without a destination. So we need a destination. I I would remind everyone as is in the, the Million Jobs Report, every state has a net zero 2050 target. So in terms of certainty for business out there, that's pretty important. It would be great if we had a national target as well, a destination that the strategies are building towards. Um, Otherwise, the world will take us there no matter what, but we could certainly de-risk it even more. Christiane, earlier you were talking about the good work that the European Commission is doing. Are there other countries you think that are worth highlighting and who've been doing a good job? Well, the individual countries in Europe as well. I would also point out to Chile that is doing a, a very good job taking advantage of this to push further into renewables and efficiency. Um, Korea as well. And my own tiny, weensy little country uh, doing the same from our side on our electric transport. But but John, could, could I turn the question back to you? Because the COVID recovery, as I understand, is going to be um, based on the recommendations of the National COVID Coordination Commission. And, uh, and I would love to hear from others on this panel their sense as to how much awareness there is among those commission members, how much awareness there is of the critical nature of, uh, of the characteristics of the COVID recovery, of the injection of capital. Is this something that those commission members truly understand or, or are they about to shoot themselves in the foot again in Australia? This is Frankly, from my point of view, and I'm very far away from you, so please feel free to discard the opinion, but I think this is the last chance for Australia. This is the last chance to wake up and understand where investments and where the economy and where energy in Australia, and especially where exports need to go. And so I would love to hear from the other panel members whether you all think that the commission members are also taken with the urgency of this transformation right now, not within 10 years, now. Yeah, well said. What would you say to that, Kevin? Well, look, uh, I know most of the people on the panel, but I, I really can't speak for them, John. Um, I one, one sector that has been crying out for a policy is the energy sector. If you look at recent speeches by Frank Calabria from uh, Origin, 
he has said the, the industry has agreed on the, as, as Mike Cannon-Brooks pointed out, the 2050 target. And the fact is that we still have 50 to 60% of our energy electricity coming from coal. Uh, the transition to renewables is a, is a huge project and we, a roadmap there would be a really good start. Now, the miners are getting it. The miners are getting out of diesel. They want, they're using uh, renewable uh, energy for their projects and they're seeking to electrify their mines and operations. So industry understands the need to make that transition, uh, but the transition, any transition, any disruption is painful. We need the wisdom of those folks on NCC to help us with that transition, as Christine said. Great. Thank you, Kevin. What, what, what are your thoughts, Deanne? Likewise, I can't necessarily speak for the individual panellists. What I can do, tell you is what we're doing as a superannuation industry. The superannuation industry has come together on this matter to give a report into the NCC to make sure that areas like climate change and affordable housing um, are really considered seriously in the mix for economic recovery because that they really serve those dual goals of looking after the economy and getting jobs growth but also really making sure we, we, we move to a, a decarbonised economy and look after critical social issues like housing affordability. So the superannuation industry is putting that report in and giving all sorts of ideas like I've just given on how we could, um, how we could really participate in that um, and really assist with the dual goals. Great. Thank you, Diane. I it's uh, the time's moving away from me, but so if there are there if there are any other comments that any of the panel members would like to make, here's your chance. Otherwise, I'll hand the floor to Aidan. Could I could I just say quickly, John? Don't forget, don't don't forget the state governments. Um, you can you can actually get some really good initiatives there. So if we're looking at electrification of transport. I think you would have an ear in Victoria and New South Wales to do that. I would urge BZE team to think of targeted approaches, uh, the affordable housing, retrofit of housing. I think that is something the states could be engaged in. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. I just wanted to take a moment to congratulate the BZE team. We need more of this type of thinking in Australia. It's very broad. It's very thorough. It's very backed in science and facts. It caters to lots of different segments of the economy and also drives the country in the direction we need to go. So for me, congratulations on everyone. I know a lot of people have worked very, very hard in, in putting this together. It's a very balanced and very thoroughly researched report. And it's exactly the sort of thinking we need more of. And it's where Australians do best is when we put our minds and our natural talents and resources and think how can we take our large capital base, our natural resources and all the talent we have between our two ears towards moving the country in a better direction. It's um, made me very hopeful to read it compared to some of the other things that have come out. So congratulations and thanks to everyone who's worked hard on it. John, if I could just add, um, the, the report, as Mike has, has said and all the rest, is uh, has such technical depth and is so broad in everything that it covers. In that sense, it truly is um, an incredibly helpful vision for, for transformation. However, I do think that the next step now of the report is to figure out how is this made politically 
palatable to all parties. Because if it remains within a narrow bind, uh, a narrow um, space of political support, then it's going to go nowhere. And this truly is the last chance for Australia. In that sense, I think that um, standing on the technicalities of this report, someone has got, a group has got to figure out how do we now sell this report? How do we make it politically palatable, in fact, politically exciting to all political parties and to all Australians? This should go beyond partisan politics. This should be an exciting new vision for Australia that is going to benefit everyone and get it out of the darn partisan politics that has been the death toll of, uh, of Australia, of all our climate policy in Australia for so many years. Is this the point at which we're going to be able to rise above politics? What an amazing panel. Just very quickly to, to respond to um, Christiana, I mean, I think that is the opportunity that we have at the moment. No matter what your partisan lean, it's recognised across the political spectrum that we are in an economic crisis at the moment and that we need to get people back to work in Australia. So by positioning this as, which it rightly is, a, a huge opportunity to create jobs and employment and economic activity in Australia, there's really no other project on this scale uh, that will achieve that goal. So we're, we're offering this to the government. We want to work with government with private investment. BZD has always been a bipartisan organisation. We've we, we worked across the political spectrum from, from day one. So we're, we're ready to work with government to talk through the opportunity and to bring business and industry on board with us to try to get some movement in this direction. Thank you so much. Thank you so much to the panel. That, that was a really stimulating conversation. And, uh, you know, as Mike says, I think it's just what we need, you know, some positive visions, you know, people that can talk through the opportunities that Australia has to move forward. So I thank you all for, um, for taking the time to speak today. You're all very busy people, thank you. So we're gonna move on now to the actual Million Jobs Plan itself. We have Michael Lord, um, our lead researcher on the plan, and Samantha Miller, who are gonna take us through uh, some of the content of the plan. So Michael, please take it away. Great, thanks for that introduction, Aitan. And a good morning, everyone from Ballarat in Wadawa and country. As Eitan and Christiana both alluded to, economists worldwide have highlighted the merits of putting practical low-carbon solutions right at the heart of our recovery from this economic crisis. What this Million Jobs Plan aims to show is if we take this low-carbon recovery approach in Australia, what's it going to mean, particularly in terms of jobs? What we found is that over a five-year period, we could create well over a million jobs. And we've, we've counted jobs as job years. Uh, that's one job for one year. And we found low carbon jobs in all sorts of sectors, not just renewable energy, but also recycling, transport, land use, and in the education and retraining of the workers um, who will get jobs in these sectors. Some of the jobs are short-term construction jobs in shovel-ready projects. But many of them are ongoing jobs that would actually last well beyond the five-year timescale we've considered in this report. It's a national plan, but obviously 
jobs are located in communities and beyond zero emissions for a long time has been engaged with um, communities and we know that they're really enthusiastic about low carbon investment and jobs in their area and after me we're going to hear from Sam Mellor from one of those communities in Hunter Valley in New South Wales. So renewable energy provides some of the jobs in the Million Jobs Plan but it also underpins many of the other jobs. Australia's advantage in renewable energy that Mike and Eitan and others have spoken about really allows us to diversify the Australian economy, which has perhaps become over-reliant on one or two industries. So our vision for renewable energy is that we fast-track installation of large-scale solar and wind, 90 gigawatts over the next five years. That would create about 124,000 jobs in construction of those projects, as well as about 22,000 ongoing jobs. It's a big step up in what Australia has done so far, but it's important to point out that we've already got 160 gigawatts of renewable energy projects in the pipeline. And according to the Clean Energy Council, about 30 gigawatts of those already have planning permission. And Eitan mentioned that last week, the New South Wales government had a call for uh, interest in just three gigawatts of renewable energy. They got responses totaling 27 gigawatts, so there were nine nine times oversubscribed just for one uh, renewable energy zone. So it's pretty obvious that clean energy investors are queuing up and ready to go with tens of billions of dollars of investment in renewable energy in Australia. Government's main role really is to unblock any barriers to that investment. It's pretty well agreed that one of the main barriers is a lack, lack of transmission, that transmission infrastructure is not kept up with the development of renewables. And we think there's a strong case for certain priority transmission projects for governments simply to fund them as part of a stimulus package, get those transmission projects built. But in other cases, there is private investment ready to invest in transmission. So one example is the Copper String project in North Queensland. This is a, a thousand kilometer transmission line linking Townsville to Mount Isa. All along that thousand kilometers, we'd open up possibility of new resources in wind and solar. All Queenslanders would benefit from this project and um, through cleaner, cheaper energy. And at the western end of this line in Mount Isa, it would connect it to the national electricity market and potentially cut in half the cost of electricity at that western end, which would be really crucial because there's a, there's a copper mine and a smelter and other heavy industry there. It would also open up this whole region to the mining and processing of metals that are important for renewable energy, things like uh, cobalt and vanadium. So as we step up our installation of renewable energy, we need to ensure that a lot of the equipment is built in Australia. We don't have to build up uh, all of it here and some of it perhaps solar panels, Australia has missed the boat. Huge opportunities in, for example, wind and battery manufacturing. There's a great story about an old Ford factory in Geelong, which has now reopened to make components for wind turbines. Vestas has employed and reskilled 20 workers there. But that's just really the tip of the iceberg. We've calculated there could be a, an Australian wind industry of 9,000 employees. In normal times, uh, the construction industry is one of Australia's biggest employers, uh, well over a million uh, people working construction, but there are well-founded fears that because of the crisis, there could be up to half a million job losses in construction. And so our ideas for buildings go a long way to reversing some of these job losses. One of the ideas is to build energy efficient social houses. So Australia's got a shortfall of 
well over 400,000 social houses, and that's contributing to homelessness rate of over 100,000 people. We could build 30,000 energy efficient social houses a year for the next five years, and we could give the occupants of those places not just somewhere to live, but comfortable, healthy homes with low electricity bills. We also need to tackle the existing inefficient housing stock in Australia. So we're proposing half a million energy retrofits a year with simple measures like uh, installing insulation and solar panels, which would allow millions of Australians to have lower energy bills simply through greater efficiency. In fact, we could go better than lower energy bills. There are business models that might allow no energy bills at all. One such business model, which is getting going in Europe, it's uh, a Dutch company, Energiesprong. They carry out whole house retrofits on houses in less than a week. After that week, they guarantee the occupants a energy performance for 30 years. So things like the internal temperature. The best thing about this is that it involves no upfront cost to the householder. So the way it's paid for is that after the retrofit, your energy bill switches to a energy service, a monthly energy service fee, which is a flat fee lower than the previous energy bill. There have been thousands of these energy retrofits in Europe. The company's now stepping up to the tens of thousands level, at which point they believe they can become self-financing. So if they can manage to do do, uh, this self-financing model in Northern Europe with freezing winters and, let's face it, not a lot of sunshine, then I'm sure we can do it in Australia. So let's incentivize the Australian energy sprongs. And a good place to start is with existing social housing and inefficient rental properties. One of the really exciting things about the Million Jobs Plan, we think, is that it would help to lead resurgence in Australian manufacturing. As well as the, uh, the items on this list, pretty much all of the ideas would lead to manufacturing opportunities. So buildings and renewables that are spoken about and transport that I'll get to in a minute, they all create opportunities for Australian manufacturing. The first item on this list, electrifying industry, that was actually the title of a BZD report out a couple of years ago. And that report shows that by switching from burning natural gas to using renewable electricity, manufacturers can reduce their costs, they can become more efficient and become more productive. Uh, So to do this with existing manufacturers would would employ huge numbers of engineers and technicians. We're also in favour of renewable hydrogen. There's been a lot of talk about the potential of Australia to make and export renewable hydrogen, but we're suggesting we should get started right now with domestic demand. Renewable hydrogen uh, is already cost competitive, for example, uh, as a fuel for heavy trucks, and it's getting towards cost competitive for other uses, such as making ammonia. With renewable energy, uh, as uh, I think Kevin might have alluded to, we can start to decarbonize both the mining and the making, manufacturing of metals. Metals are a really important part of renewable energy technologies. Australia is already a top producer and exporter of many metals, but by and large, we export these as ores, or basically we're exporting rocks. We'd get a lot more revenue from those metals if we process them here using renewable energy. There's a whole list of metals that this might apply to, like steel and manganese, cobalt, rare earths, vanadium. And we're going to hear about, uh, in a minute, an opportunity for the Hunter Valley to return to its steel-making paths. I'm going to talk about aluminium because it's uh, we already have four aluminium smelters in Australia, but they're 
current owners, Alcoa and Rio Tinto, have hinted strongly that they may be selling up in the next few years. Certainly, the, the smelters look like they're on borrowed time. And part of the problem um, they're facing is that aluminium is extremely energy intensive to make, electricity intensive, and, and electricity just isn't quite cheap enough in Australia anymore. The other part of the problem is the carbon intensity of Australia's electricity. So big customers of aluminium uh, companies like BMW, Apple, and Tetra Pak have made clear that they want low emissions aluminium. The producers like Alcoa and Rio Tinto are responding. Alcoa wants 85% of its electricity to come from renewables in the next few years. So we think there's a bright future for aluminium production in Australia, but that future has to be based on low cost renewable energy. If we do that, we get an added bonus, or we could get an added bonus with aluminium smelters is in that they could support a grid that relies largely on solar and wind. The way they do this, normally aluminium smelters operate very inflexibly, pretty much the same electricity use all year round. But there's new technology that allows them to work flexibly, in which case they would become like giant grid batteries, like the big battery in South Australia, but a fraction of the cost of those big batteries. In fact, there's already a smelter in Germany that operates this way, and they say they make more money now operating the energy markets than they do from selling aluminium. One company that I'd like to highlight because it shares our vision of domestic processing of metals with renewable energy is Element 25. They plan to mine manganese ore in Western Australia and make high purity manganese, which uh, one of the uses of that is in lithium ion batteries. They need electricity to do this and they could use gas fired electricity because they've got access to a local gas pipeline. But they've worked out that it would actually be cheaper for them to go close to 100% renewable. And that would reduce their cost of production, allow them to compete with China, and also keep their uh, future customers pretty happy with a lower emissions product. In transport, we believe that most land transport in the near future will be electric. Electric vehicles, certainly electric buses and trains are cleaner and quieter, faster. They've got lower running costs. They're certainly less polluting than diesel and petrol equivalents. With buses, we're seeing cities worldwide switch to uh, uh, electric buses quite rapidly. Places like London and Paris and Mexico City. There's a city in China, Shenzhen, that not long ago had 16,000 diesel buses. And in three short years, they switched to 16,000 electric buses. We're saying that here in Australia, we should replace our older, dirtier diesel buses with electric. This would boost the bus building industry we already have and the extensive manufacturing supply chain in the bus sector. The same with railways. We think we should replace the existing diesel rail. BZE's long been a big proponent of high-speed rail, but to get jobs quickly in this five-year period, we're contenting ourselves with faster rail, not high-speed, and that would involve the electrification of thousands of kilometres of existing rail line. And one of the benefits of this would be we could halve the time of journeys from our capital cities to many regional towns. And the, the federal government's actually already backing some of these routes from the city to Newcastle. And Infrastructure Australia recently added to its priority list the Sydney to Canberra route. Not many people catch this train from Sydney to Canberra, apparently. If you did, you'd have plenty of time to admire the New South Wales scenery because it takes four and a half hours, unbelievably. But with a fast electric train, we could reduce that journey to a couple of hours and, um, and allow it to compete with 
both car and air travel. We could employ a lot of people regenerating land in Australia. We're proposing the revegetation of 27 million hectares of degraded agricultural land. This would help us regenerate Australia's unique ecosystems and make them more resilient to bushfire and climate change. We'd also reduce national emissions by up to 5% every year following this plan. And one a great land use initiative, which we think could be expanded, is uh, Indigenous fire management, which is already going on across northern Australia. Indigenous groups are using traditional burning practices to reduce fire risk and greenhouse gas emissions. It also allows them to connect with country and earn income from carbon credits. So beyond zero emissions, as I mentioned earlier, works with local communities, 65 communities actually across Australia and every state and territory. So we know that the kind of measures we're talking about are really popular locally. If they're done right, communities are consulted uh, and, and involved. So now I'm going to hand over to Samantha Mella to talk about one of those communities, the Hunter Valley in New South Wales, which has a proud industrial heritage and hopefully a really exciting zero carbon future. So over to you, Sam. Thank you very much, Michael, and good morning, everyone. I'm Samantha Mella, and I'm the engagement lead for Beyond Zero Emissions here in the Hunter Valley. And I'm coming to you today from Wanarua country, not that far from the Hunter River. So what does the One Million Jobs Plan mean for the Hunter? It means over five years, 50,000 jobs and 115,000 jobs over 10 years with 24,000 of those jobs ongoing. And that's a big deal. We did five case studies here in the Hunter based on the 90 gigawatt renewable energy rollout. And beyond zero emissions staff and volunteers spent hundreds and hundreds of hours talking to locals on the ground. We've talked to workers, we've talked to communities, we've talked to industry, we've talked to companies that want to set up in the Hunter, and we've talked to people who live and work on the land. So what we found out is housing retrofits. Michael's already talked a little bit about this, but for the Hunter Valley, that would mean 10,000 jobs a year over five years to bring the entire Hunter housing stock up to a six-star energy rating. And this will bring so many lasting benefits. It reduces everyone's energy bills, improves quality of life. So we spoke to people who live on the land and there's been major changes to the landscape in the Hunter Valley. And so there's a huge opportunity for jobs in restoring and repairing the landscape. We can actually change the local climate. We can deal with a lot of problems like feral animals, droughts, fires, weeds with the way we use the land. We can employ almost 1,900 people a year for five years to rehabilitate mine sites. And there's another 360 jobs a year in reforesting other areas. 200 jobs a year in supporting local farmers to adapt their farms to create extra income. Thank you, Ani Ruby. Yeah, we have deep knowledge in managing the Australian landscape here and we'd love to see 200 Indigenous rangers in the Hunter helping us manage the land and our waterways. Now, fly ash. We've got a big contamination problem in the Hunter and that's the ash that's left over from coal-fired power stations. We spoke to a manufacturer called Bearcore Australia Proprietary Limited, 
and they take the fly ash that's not suitable for concrete and process it in a way that locks up the heavy metals and contaminants and then they produce products like tiles, coarse aggregates and engineered sands. And a factory here in the Hunter that would be all electric could employ 400 people and it can be done on a timeline and in a location that aligns with the closure of a roaring power station. Michael talked a lot about metals and one really well understood opportunity in the Hunter is green steel. This will build on the 90 gigawatt rollout that Michael talked about and become a new way to export energy out of the port of Newcastle. Now we've got a lot of history in steel making here in Newcastle. We'd love to have the steel industry come back. Around the world, there's a focus on supply chains and, and the need to reduce scope two and scope three emissions. So by producing steel with zero emissions, the hunter can add value to the massive amount of iron ore that is mined here in Australia, and we can onshore a lot of jobs here in the hunter. Now, there's two pathways for green steel. One is using hydrogen, and within 10 years, there can be 10,000 people employed in producing green steel through hydrogen. Now, we've talked to a company called Boston Metal, who is commercialising a new technology called molten oxide electrolysis. And it puts the iron ore in a chemical solution and passes electric current through that solution and produces high-grade crude steel. And if you're using 100% renewable energy, the only gas that's released from this process is oxygen. This can revolutionise the whole steelmaking industry. And we've talked to Boston Metal about setting up a pilot project here in the Hunter. And within five years, we can employ 100 people and be producing 100,000 tonnes of crude steel a year. And 1,000 people can be employed within 10 years. So we can bring back steel to the Hunter and we can future-proof the Hunter green steel industry by using both hydrogen and electrolysis. So finally, there's an excellent opportunity with zero emission buses. Now, Transport New South Wales, the New South Wales state government needs 8,000 zero emission buses for their net zero emissions plan. And the Hunter in, is the best place in New South Wales for these buses to be built. We spoke to seven capable businesses across the Hunter, and we know we have the skills and the workforce here in the Hunter to pivot to zero emissions production. So Amp Control is a fantastic example of how versatile Hunter Valley business can be. This local company engineers electronics such as um, underground substations for the mines. Yet at the drop of the hat, they were able to engineer and produce ventilators to support New South Wales hospitals during COVID-19. So the hunter businesses we spoke to are really versatile and they can produce the smart electronics, the components and the charging stations to assemble zero emissions buses right here. So their expertise from producing net zero emissions heavy vehicles net zero emission metals can really set up the hunter for the future and, and make us a zero emissions export hub. And these, these case studies are only the beginning. Beyond Zero as the diversification project in the hunter and that's a two-year project. And the work you're seeing here is the output of the first three months of the project. We are talking to stakeholders across 
community, business, industry and workers. And what we're finding here in the Hunter is everyone is pulling in the same direction. There is this really powerful sense of self-determination and momentum towards diversification here in the Hunter. There are so many potential industries, projects and initiatives in the Hunter and we plan to work with everyone to create a viable, doable, realistic pathway to a prosperous, diversified Hunter. So please get in touch, join us, we'd love to hear from you. There's a lot going on in the Hunter at the moment, it's a very exciting place to be. And thank you, that's all from me, so I'll hand over to Aitan. Thanks Sam and Michael, that was a fantastic presentation. We're going to get into uh, questions and discussion, but uh, a lot of the questions are on the theme of what's the next steps and what's BZD going to do now. So maybe I'll answer that first because that'll, that'll shortcut uh, a lot of the questions. Basically, this plan is a framework. We've shown where uh, investments and jobs could lie if we decide to take this path forward for the Australian economy. Really, we're looking to bring industry, government and the community on board with us. We've already done a lot of consultation with community, as Sam pointed out with, her, with that great example of, of the Hunter Valley. And we've spoken to lots of companies and businesses as well to submit their projects. And really where we think the rubber hits the road is that this is a plan that shows this is a fantastic opportunity for Australia. We plan to gather that list of projects that are you know, I hate to say it, but shovel ready and investable by, by private investment and take that to government with the proponents for the project, with the community that supports those projects and say, here it is, here's the opportunity. All you need to do is perhaps unlock a bit of infrastructure, change a policy, do something. You know, we are here with the proponents who are ready to invest to create this thing for Australia. That's at a very high level uh, future plan. And obviously there's lots of people um, on this call. So anybody that is willing to get involved in that in terms of bringing their organization on board, submitting projects, helping us out, getting communities on board, please get in touch because BZD is a small organization and the only way we've ever been able to create change is by building a coalition of support around our plans. Okay, so now for some more specific questions that, that we've been getting. We've got a question around what kinds of things do we need green hydrogen for? Isn't solar cheaper? Yeah, so Beyond Zero Emissions agrees with some of the touted uses of green hydrogen and not others. So, for example, one where, place where we don't think green hydrogen is particularly useful is mixing it with gas, the gas net, just residential gas networks, because it just makes much more efficient and a much quicker route to zero emissions to electrify things like space heating and water. But there are other areas where hydrogen could be extremely useful. So making steel, for example, without fossil fuels. The only commercialized project, Sam, Sam spoke about Boston Metals, um, which is exciting research, but the only commercialized way of making steel without fossil fuels is with green hydrogen. One of the other places hydrogen is not going to go away is in ammonia. So you, you have to have hydrogen to make ammonia, which is an important basis for fertilizers at the moment. Virtually all of that hydrogen worldwide is uh, extracted from fossil fuels, but we could make it using renewable energy. So there, there are a couple of really good uses for hydrogen. Thanks, Michael. Uh, we have a very important question. How can the projects in this report benefit all people, not just shareholders? In particular, benefits for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. As we build more and more renewable energy, inevitably there, there's going to be more times when renewable energy projects are on land with native title or traditional owners. 
this is an opportunity, you know, we've got to face it, it's also a risk as well that projects like this haven't been done well in the past. So we have to make sure that it's an opportunity and that traditional owners are able to benefit from and engage with these projects and participate in the businesses. And the same goes not just for renewable energy projects, but all the projects we're talking about. I think I mentioned in my presentation, there's also some specific uh, ideas in our report to do with land use. Sam, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I'd just like to um, point out that there are some renewable energy projects in Western Australia that are being built in partnership with Indigenous corporations. And it's a wonderful opportunity. Uh, solar can be built in a way and to support mining projects in a way that is respectful of heritage. We have another great question. Uh, there are lots of good emissions reducing project ideas that are not in the report. How did BZD choose the projects that are included? Yeah, I, th I think that's a fair enough point. Not everything is included in the report. We chose ideas that could create a lot of jobs and create jobs quickly. Those were our focuses. I'm sure even there, there are, there are great ideas that we'd love to hear um, that have not been included. Um, I mean, not all of them were included in my presentation as well. Like I didn't really talk about cycling, uh, but you know, something like cycling lanes is actually, for all transport investment, that is the best way to employ people per kind of million dollars that you spend. And they're also very quick projects to get off the ground because they are you know, really minor adjustments to roads. Um, but no doubt there are great, there are great ideas that um, we either didn't think of or didn't get time to include in the report. Another question, what is the time frame for implementing these projects? Well, well, our time frame uh, and, and the way we've counted jobs is over the next five years um, because we were lo really looking at the current uh, economic crisis and the IMF advice that the crisis will last at least five years. So we've looked at things that could only be done within five years. So for example, we don't really assign many jobs to either the hydrogen or the steel industry because we feel they can get started in the next five years. But if we gave ourselves a longer time frame of 10 or 20 years, those sectors could employ many thousands more people. There's a question that maybe you've touched on a little bit in the presentation, but go to slightly more detail. With this massive rollout, what's your plan for recovery, reuse and recycling? Shouldn't we focus on a circular economy? Yeah, we, we, we should, uh, and apologies for not uh, including that in the presentation. There is actually a section in the report uh, about recycling. We're very supportive of the circular economy. We're calling for all states and territories to match the ambition of the ACT, who are aiming to recover and recycle 90% of waste in the ACT by 2025, and also sending no nothing that can be recovered to landfill. The whole country shared that ambition. We would stop wasting a lot of material and, and create a lot of jobs. And I'd just like to point out that there's some great work being done in the Hunter on the circular economy with the Hunter Joint Organisations. And here's the question that I've been waiting for. It finally got asked. How will all this be paid for? <laughs> uh, yeah, we've, we've got a section on this in the introduction to the report. So... Much of it, private investors are actually willing to fund it with the right incentives. So I mentioned that there's, a, there's 160 gigawatts of renewable energy in the pipeline. So there's private investment lined up for much of that, which would, you know, well over 100 billion. I also spoke about the copper string transmission line, which you know, is going to be built with private investment. 
So it's, it's really about unlocking the barriers to that private investment, creating the incentives. So if we incentivized uh, charging infrastructure and the rollout of electric buses, bus manufacturers could get on board. They could create new business models, such as leasing buses to bus authorities rather than selling them. And then there's a few places where we, we're saying we need government investment. And we know we're going to need more economic stimulus from government in any case. So one of the best ways to spend that is on low carbon recovery. Examples of that are, well, for example, social housing. That's going to require some probably majority public spending, uh, but the benefits from it are, are enormous, uh, not least in tackling our appalling ha uh, level of homelessness. Thanks, Michael. And I think Mark Cannon-Brooks made a good point on that as well, in that private investment needs policy certainty to be able to be unlocked. So, you know, that's an easy thing that the government could do as well to, um, to ensure that private investment piles in. All right, we've got time for one last question, and it is a great question. Another question that we've been asked quite a lot. How will we make sure that we're creating good jobs, long-term, well-paid, secure jobs in regional areas? Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure Sam would like to add to this for the hunter. Many of the jobs would naturally be regional jobs. So manufacturing jobs are not sort of urban jobs. They're either suburban or re regional jobs. We can, as we build, say, a wind industry, we can, the governments can have some control over where those jobs flow to and the same for buses and trains. Um, in terms of good quality jobs, many of them are ongoing jobs in manufacturing. Manufacturing jobs are actually good quality jobs. They, they pay more than the average job. They, they have better terms of conditions. But where the government is stimulating these sectors or, or making local content requirements, they should also be putting in requirements about the quality of these jobs and that they're not casualised workforce, they're permanent positions, et cetera. And uh, just from a Hunter Valley perspective, I think we need to be focused on future-focused jobs. We need to future-proof the Hunter and, you know, green steel, green aluminium, addressing the supply chains is really hooking us into the where the global economy is going and um, we'll just we'll still be an energy centre and energy port we're just going to do it differently and move with the times okay well thank you sam and michael that was a fantastic presentation and and michael especially thank you for leading the research into the million jobs plan uh you should be able to download it from our website today it's 120 pages and it makes a very satisfying funk when you when you drop it onto a desk. So clearly there's been a lot of hard work being put into it. So, you know, hats off to you, Michael, for, for leading the research effort. Thanks, it's been a team effort. So just to wrap up, I talked about the next steps that BZD plan to make in terms of gathering support around this plan and presenting it to government. We plan on running a few more events along that journey. We'll be running a, a manufacturing and mining industry briefing in a few weeks' time and an investment roundtable where we're looking to, br to bring together um, people from private investment world and community and government. Then we will ultimately head up to Canberra probably sometime in August to do a round of meetings with politicians and ministers and hopefully bring together proponents of these investments with us and, and make it clear that uh, this is a highly desirable destination for Australia's economy. And, you know, I think if we look at the jobs figures it's clear that something is going to have to be done to get people back to work in Australia. And as I've said, this is one of the only visions that is, is big enough and large enough to be at the scale that we're going to need. 
please consider joining with us. Obviously, BZE is, a, is a heavily dependent on volunteers. If you have expertise in this space, get in touch and we will get you involved. Um, if you have case studies or projects that you would like to submit for us to include in that batch of projects that we, that we take up to Canberra, please get in touch. Obviously, share this with your network. You've all got incredible networks. Share this report around, make sure people have heard of it. Um, we'll be doing a, a media and advertising campaign around it, but there's nothing better than getting a personal recommendation from a friend. Um, and if you'd like to, to be a spokesperson for your community, uh, for your particular project, get in touch as well. Go to our website, millionjobs.org.au or bze.org.au to download the report. And please, if you think our work is valuable and, um, and you've enjoyed this presentation, consider making a donation to BZE. Still got a few days left before the end of the financial year. bze.org.au. So thank you very much. Thank you to the panelists. Thank you to everyone, um, to, to everyone that's spoken. And thank you to Auntie Ruby Sims. And thanks to all of you for being part of this journey. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network, and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Hear